Welcome to the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. Hello, everybody. It's JPGN Journal Club time again. And, you know, I was so taken with the metaphor that I used to describe these curated presentations of selected articles from JPGN, led by Dr. Yenke, Andreas Yenke, as a as a sort of menu at a high-class restaurant where you're not allowed to choose among your courses, no a la carte dining here. Instead, you have to take what the chef serves up to you, and by God, you'd better enjoy it. Let's start with the first article, then, out of three. And that's a, it's an amuse-bouche, a gruss aus der Küche, a little taster from the chef. Andreas, tell us about the Birmingham experience with Bud Chiari syndrome. Well, it's a single-center retrospective data collection. Um, they basically collected all patients during the last 26 years. So it's a quarter of a century. And what's remarkable at first is that they only had 27 patients. So first that's of all, so, that's not so remarkable. When I lived in, and worked in Pittsburgh, the slides from the liver biopsy specimen and the hepatectomy specimen of the one female adolescent who had been identified with Bud Chiari syndrome and polycythemia vera, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, were practically placed in a shrine because they were so unusual and there was so much to learn from them. So one per year seems like a darn good diagnostic and treatment record. Okay, if you say so, um, I think having just one patient per year makes it very difficult to build up a sufficient expertise in treating the patients. That's for sure. So, but they've so, got it in Birmingham. And, yeah, and they're yeah, sharing it with us. Yes, yeah, and this is really nice. So obviously, they were able to build up a very good multidisciplinary team taking care of the, these patients, and they demonstrate in this, of course, retrospective study that um, they have uh, quite a high success rate with um, their management. So what they first did is, of course, they tried to identify the etiology. So many patients had some underlying thrombophilic um, disorders, and some also had more than one, actually. They also screened for, or they said they screened for JAK2 mutations, which is a little bit difficult from my point of view, since um, the JAK2 mutation was only described in, in 2005, if I remember correctly, and um, they start their cohort from 1996. So it might mm, be mm. that they missed several patients um, in this right. area. I don't remember them describing going back in retrospective genetic analysis from paraffin-embedded tissue. No, um, me neither, actually. That detail is so, missing. Okay. But moving that apart, they focus on some kind of categorization based on how many hepatic veins are occluded, which is nice. Second, they demonstrate that just a medical therapy with, um, for example, aspirin or something like that is mm -hmm. almost in all cases insufficient. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they um, argue for rad radiological intervention. So this is quite nice. So 71% of the patients underwent radiological intervention. intervention. Some of those patients um, needed more than one. But so what, what are we talking about with radiologic? Are we talking about a TIPS procedure? Are we talking about ballooning of a stenosis? Well, in most cases, it's a TIPS procedure. So it's four TIPS of 14 and five um, angioplasties. Angioplasties, so, yes. Yeah. So, and then some of the angioplasties um, needed a TIPS afterwards. Sure, sure. But in 71 of the patients, this, well, relatively conservative management was successful. Now, let's define success. What, are you, what were their criteria for success, and would you share those criteria? Are, you, are they yours? Well, first of all, they, they are not so clear about their success criteria. I mean, mm -hmm. it's liver function, of course, and no signs of disseminated intravasal um, gulopathy anymore, and, of course, mortality in the end. Um, Mortality or need for liver transplant, yeah? Yes, yeah. And so far as I remember from the paper, they had no patients going to liver transplantation and all patients are still alive and they had a median follow-up of, I think, 10 years, something like that, which is, um, from my perspective, quite... Isn't that good? That's really good, good. Yeah. 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 So, and this was with the radiologic approach first, and then tips later. And what comes first of angioplasty, second tips, and then what comes after that? I mean, if both are not successful, you usually um, have some kind of open surgery procedure. Mm -hmm. But in their cohort, uh, there was obviously no need. So, at least that's what they state. All right. All right. So if you've got the right team working, the hepatologists and the hematologists, the hemato-oncologists and the uh, radiologists, the imaging study boys, then this is a reason, this is putting together a team like that is key to managing these patients well. I agree. I mean, you need a team and then Again, you need a sufficient number of cases. So mm. probably in a country like Great Britain, only two centers should treat pediatric butt Chiari syndrome. And in Germany, maybe three or not more than four to have a sufficient number of patients to gain a substantial amount of expertise in treating these patients. In order to know what to do. How many patients like this have you seen, Andreas? Are you following now? Well, just one. Aha. Uh -huh. And how many have you sent elsewhere for... One. One and one. Okay. <laughs> or yeah, is it I the same one? Yeah, it was... Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Indeed, it was the same one. So it was a female, and um, she also had a, a JAK2 mutation um, due to polycythemia vera, and she needed sufficient um, oncological um, support. So, 
and we send the patient to the most expert center in our area. And Alrighty. I think this is reasonable to do. Okay. That seems to me pretty much to wrap that article in shiny paper and to tie it with a big red bow. Um, anything else you'd like to mention from it? No. Okay. Then let's move on to paper number two. Huh? That's the one about body composition. Body composition in children who are receiving parenteral and enteral nutrition and how it, diver how it diverges from the norm and what can be done to bring it back toward the norm. Um, what should we take away from that article? Well, first of all, I mean, if you hear physical activity and relation uh, to body composition, you think it's very easy. I mean, you need physical you do, activity yeah. to build up your muscle mass, to reduce the amount of fat and so on. I mean, it's, it's easy at first glance. But what I find interesting in this paper and I at the moment take care of um, seven kids with um, intestine failure um, at our facility, is that physical activity and um, body composition are also problematic in children who have been already weaned of parental nutrition. So children with uh, intestine failure who achieved enteral autonomy. Right. So this was a little bit new for me because I always thought that, I mean, you, you have your kids, they are on, on parental nutrition. You see these kids every three months and you change the parental nutrition to improve weight gain and so on. Mm -hmm. And if you eventually achieve that you can wean them off, I was always happy and thought, well, that's it you really made the, the most important job. But as it seems, you need to, to continue um, pushing them to physical activity and to improve the body composition. Well, I can believe this because huh, I can remember as a child being scolded continually, put that book down and go out in the sunshine and get some fresh air and play. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe a kid who's been tethered to an IV pole for much of her life is just not going to want to join. She doesn't know what it's like to have played football since she was five or six in kitty soccer. She's going to need to be introduced to that. Yeah, it could be a main reason that there is some kind of attitude that that you learn when you are on parental nutritional support and you just need to push that away and to regain your, your, how do you say, your... You're a normal uh, kid now. Yeah, Get out there yeah, and play. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so this could be the underlying message that you need to, to be aware of the fact um, that if they are off parental support, there are still the attitude that's left and you also need to change the attitude. It's not just a kid attitude though, it's a parent attitude. In your experience, do the parents look on these kids as fragile, as especially precious because they've gone through so much, as 
um, hey, yeah, right. hey, let me bring you, let me bring you the the crisps and the diet. Uh, let, me, let me bring you the crisps and the and the fizzy drink. Yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right. So I think this is important. You and need to give the parents a pep talk. Yes, and it also comes down to fat body mass because oh. it, it's it's not different in the preventarily and anterior fat kids. So I think. What you said is absolutely right. We need to focus um, on the attitude and we need to give the parents some, some kind of advice that they should let these kids be normal kids if they are of parental support. So That's, a, you know, when I first, as, as you said, it just seems so obvious. I mean, um, exercise brings, in, brings a shift in the proportion of body mass from fatty body mass to lean body mass right okay yeah i mean if 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 you sit in front of your playstation and never move you're going to be a slug but um absolutely but you've pulled more out of that than i than i saw and i thank you for doing that but now let's move on to the third paper which um i really love to read because ah, that's just because you agree with it yeah, I was so happy to read it because it it's, it it confirms all my, your biases. That's no, what no, it no. does. No, no, no. It 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 reflects my own experiences and oh, also okay. underscores a recent paper from adult patients that demonstrates that more than fifty percent of the adults with ulcerative colitis are stable on azathioprine. Okay. compared to Crohn's disease. but we, we, we need to get back and just our listeners are now saying, so what the heck is this paper about anyway? Uh, give us it in a capsule. This paper is about thiopurians maintenance therapy in children with the ulcerative colitis. And it comes from Israel and it's a multicenter study. Okay. So what it basically shows is that more than 50% of the state of the patients with ulcerative colitis are stable on thiopurins alone. So they do not need biologicals. They do not need TNF-alpha um, therapy, anti-TNF-alpha therapy. So this is important from my point of view since well, for recently, one thing, that's that's expensive drugs, and it's hair yes. trigger modulation. You have to monitor the levels. You have to, and you, and and they become less effective as the longer that the patient is exposed to them. You're right, but in addition, over the last five to ten years, there there has been some kind of change in the attitude. The physicians are are starting the treatment. So initially, we have these bottom up. Th strategy. So we start with the least effective, see how it's going, and then we continue to more powerful drugs and so on. If the kids are not doing well, then you then you crank up the volume. Yes. And nowadays, it's more like a top down approach. You start Blast with them the out most, of the sky. Blast yes. them out of the sky before yes. they can attack. Yes, yeah, absolutely right. So um, and what they clearly show here that you do not need to do that. Uh -huh. So, so bottom up in ulcerative colitis is fine. First of all, 50% of the patients are stable on thiopurines, which is really quite remarkable. And secondly, 
if they are not stable, the, the response rate to biologicals is still the same compared to patients who receive the biologicals first. So you so, do not. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't sacrifice. You don't sacrifice deployability of the biologics by trying thiopurines first. Absolutely. So huh. I think this this study is a very strong argument to start kids with the ulcerate of colitis on azathioprine first before you try biologicals. But as I said before. This is only the case for ulcerative colitis. So if you uh -huh. have Crohn's disease, even though um, there is no sufficient pediatric data out there, it's most likely that the response rates are much lower, like 20% or even 15%. So, and this is also my, my personal experience. So that if you have a patient with Crohn's disease, it's quite rare that they are stable on azathioprine, for example. Okay. Well, then the question comes down, down to how good are we at distinguishing between UC and CD and indeterminate inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, we, well, it depends on the pathologists, I would say. Ah, and ah, it, I knew you were and, going to say that. And it also underscores the importance of the pathologist. Uh -huh. I mean, so so sometimes you have pathologists that are not sure, they do not want to say it's that or it's this or that. But um, mm. it clearly says it's important that you make a decision. I mean, it's okay from my perspective if in the end it was the wrong decision, but it's better to make a decision than to make none. Oh, jeez. I, I, what are you going to tell me now? Hey, Alex, no stress, no stress. <laughs> okay, got to make a decision. All right. Well, th did they did they measure uh, blood levels of thiopurines in in these kids? Do we need a prospective study? No, no, they didn't. So usually, you it's it's not necessary to do that. But um, okay. they looked for fecal caprotectin, and uh -huh. um, there was also a bunch of patients who received um, rescope and they um, demonstrated mucosal healing and um, it yeah, was quite right, nicely then. done. Oh. Yeah, okay. quite nicely done. Well, Andreas, let's just raise our napkins to our lips and uh, say, well, that was a that was a proper dinner, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, but 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to say there's something else coming up something else in this month of October on the Espigan website to which you want to call our attention? Almost. So it's oh. not in October, it's in November. So uh -huh. there's going to be the eighth IBD masterclass in Amsterdam in the Netherlands mm -hmm. in mid of November. And then similarly, mid of November in Newcastle, United Kingdom, necrotizing anthrocolitis, state of the art. So if you need more information on that, go to aspgun.org and um, registration is um, already open. It's a chance That's to it. see your friends again and to learn. Absolutely. Okay. Andy, once again, thank you very much for having visited us here at JPGN Journal Club. 
having led JPG and Journal Club. And good night, good afternoon, or good morning, everyone. And see you next time or hear you next time for the November issue. Bye-bye. Thank you.